Well, following Jesus is what all of us are called to do, no matter where you are or where you've come from or where you might find yourself going. Following Jesus is something that we're all called to do. And if we follow Jesus, what we're called, according to the scriptures, are called disciples. Disciples are people who follow Jesus. Now, at the same time of that, as us following Jesus, we are also called by the same Lord, by the same powerful word, to not only follow him, but we're supposed to encourage other people to follow him as well, both initially, maybe in evangelism, but also continually in what is called discipleship. We're called to gather other people around God's good name. Now, you've heard me say it again multiple times, and I got it from a pastor named Mark Dever, where a disciple is someone who follows Jesus. A discipler is someone who helps someone else follow Jesus, and a disciplee is someone who's being helped to follow Jesus. So that is discipleship. Or maybe to put it more formally, discipleship is the process of deliberately doing spiritually good with someone else so that they will be more like Jesus. Discipleship is doing something deliberate and spiritually good with someone else so that they will be more like Jesus. But discipleship on its own can be a very dangerous thing. Your help towards other people can possibly be a dangerous thing. Now, our passage this morning is a series, it comes from a series of instructions that that Matthew places in front of us uh, from the words and actions of Jesus. And it's brilliant in not only its path, but also in the purpose that Matthew has all these words laid out. It's, It's confronting the question that everyone has. Everyone aims for this question to be answered. Everyone is fearful of getting the answer wrong. And that question is, what does it mean to truly follow Jesus? What does it mean to truly follow Jesus? Now, if you're here and you're not a Christian, how would you answer that question? Maybe, what does it truly mean to follow Jesus? Or maybe in your own mind, what does it mean to see other people follow Jesus? Or if you're here and you are a Christian, how have you answered that question? What does it mean to follow Jesus in your life? The answer to this question puts everything that you might have a question about in proper order. What will tomorrow bring? What's the meaning of life? What is my purpose here? Why does suffering happen? What is good and evil? What is death? What happens after death? Now, our scriptures say that there is one hope, that we would be reconciled to God. That is what the Psalms call our portion, but very often we know God more deeply through discipleship. And so it's an important thing to understand what does it mean to to be a disciple? What does it mean to disciple someone? What does it mean to be discipled by someone? Which is why our discipleship is so important and why it can also be very dangerous. Because sometimes, not always on purpose, our discipleship or the process of our discipleship actually becomes the end of our faith instead of the means within our faith. The, the things that you might be doing as a disciple can, can somehow become the actual affection of your attention. So for example, I might ask you, are you a Christian? And you might say, yes. And I might follow up with that was, what does that mean for you to be a Christian? And you might go, well, I, I read my Bible, I pray, and I go to church, which sounds really good. But that's not what a Christian is. That might be what a Christian does. There's nothing more important than this, though, to know how to approach the Lord Jesus Christ, who alone can bring us to God. 
and maybe more central of a question, what does it mean to be a Christian? Here we have people in our passage looking at Christ himself who have found the end of their practice to be the object of their affection. They're looking at Jesus and they're asking the question, why do your disciples do something different than what we've been taught to do? Now, for several weeks, we've seen in different paragraphs from the Scripture that seem to be separate events, and they are oddly pieced together, though they're not that odd when they're being pieced together. What we see again and again, and if you're using an outline that's been provided on the back of the bulletin, we see that many people throughout the Scriptures have misconceptions about who Jesus is. We see that in a couple of verses at the beginning of our passage. We, have, we see people having misconceptions of Christ. Something you'll see through the characters that approach Jesus is their misconceptions on how to treat him. They don't know what to do with the man in front of them. How do they encounter him? How are they led to him or possibly led away from him? And the the chapters around this passage are full of misconceptions of his teaching with regards to the faith in Christianity. Think of the man who brought their friend through the roof to hear Jesus. They heard about Jesus being there. They took their friend there because they must have said, if anyone can do something about our friend, it's him. And they saw a crowd, tore a hole in a roof, and went home blessed. And another man, Matthew, the tax collector, was just at his workplace, minding his own business, when suddenly our Lord came up to him and commanded him to follow him. And Matthew did. He got up and followed him. And then Jesus went to Matthew's house for a dinner party. And there were people there like Matthew, known as being unrighteous, or known as being worldly, or known as being sinners. And the Pharisees saw this and were confused, and they were shocked about who Jesus was hanging out with. And Jesus told them that anyone who's whole doesn't need a physician, but only the sick need a physician, and that's why he came here. Look at verse 13, just above our passage in chapter 9. It says, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. This should have been an encouraging message for people to hear, yet they had misconceptions about who the Lord was before them. Now today, our passage, you'll see another incident of the disciples, the disciples of John the Baptist, who came to our Lord and gave him a question. And it's a good question, especially since they were taught the things that they were taught. And it says in verse 14 of our passage, then the disciples of John came to him saying, why do we and the Pharisees fast? But your disciples do not fast. And Jesus said to them, can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? Here we have uh, the theme continuing on where people have a misconception about who Jesus is. It's basically the same thing again and again, except the introduction of our text is a little bit different than the ones around it. There, there isn't so much a problem that people have in which they go to Jesus with. You know, there's not a storm. There's not a paralytic. There's not anything else that seems to be threatening their life, but rather they go to him with a complaint. Their misconception of who he is leads them to complain to him about his followers' lives. Now think about it. Aren't you overwhelmed when you read through the Gospels, and I hope you do, at the, at the possible misunderstandings of the Gospel that people have? They have what you and I don't have. They had Jesus right in front of them, and still they had a misconception of who he is. Here we have the Son of God incarnate, healing diseases, teaching with pure authority, And yet, so much of his time is taken up with questions, arguments, debates about himself. Now, maybe if you're in education, I know that some of you are here as teachers or educators, some of you are professors, there's always that one kid in class who just continually asks questions, and you're like, if you would just let me get through the lecture, you will have your answer, or if you had just read your book, 
You know, it drove me nuts in seminary where we would have a world-class scholar on New Testament epistles, and there was always this person who wouldn't stop raising his hand. And it's like, let that guy speak. We only have him for three hours. But in our case, it was Jesus' answers to their continual questions that are so helpful for us today. Uh, and it was also helpful for them and then. Uh, and it's in its helpful, correct, and powerful words that we see that God has kept for us, and even for you, non-Christian, these, these instructions or these good words from Jesus are actually for you to, to deal with as well. It's not just for us to meditate on and, and study on and, and you know, magnify within relation to our own life, but also for you if you have questions about who Jesus is. Here is the Gospels laid out before you. But here we have these words that help us see what we hope that we should see from Jesus and from his gospel. It is a good question of what these people ask. And and at first it was the Pharisees who came to Jesus with real issues. And now look who came. The disciples of John the Baptist, the greatest prophet, John the Baptist, the, the forerunner of our Lord and Savior. He went before Jesus and was so amazing and so astonishing that people thought he was the Messiah. But Eve said, I'm not even good enough to clean his shoes. How glorious is the one who will come after me and give him your attention. And yet they came to Jesus in verse 14 and they said, Why is it that we, in my own translating, are observing pre-programmed days of fasting when your disciples never fast? Now fundamentally they have at their root the same issue as the others before. The circumstances are different. Theirs is a complaint rather than maybe a life-altering problem, but it's the same root issue, and that is all problems that we have, all problems with Christ have at their root misconceptions at who he really is and what he really is teaching. All problems have at their root misconceptions at who Christ is and what he's teaching. All prejudices, all misconceptions about Christianity have to do with Christ and his teaching. Uh, That's what keeps people away. That's what keeps people in, is their understanding of who he is and what he has done. Either they don't know what they're looking at, or they don't understand his words. And that's the root of the logical issue that we have, and these people have in front of them. All, All the understanding that they might have or might not have are because of his words. And that's the root. All questions people have, they're rooted in who the person of Christ is in his word, and beautifully and helpfully, Anytime it's brought up, Christ deals with their misconceptions. We see him graciously dealing with their misconceptions again and again. So I want us to look pretty briefly at Christ's unique teaching. Number two, on your outline, we we see that people have misconceptions of Christ, but then look at his unique teaching. Not only does Christ give them a plain answer, but he then follows it up with two very clear parables for his listeners to hear and for us to understand. His plain, obvious answer is complemented by two parables. So what is his teaching? Well, both in his statement and in his parables is this. He and his gospel are entirely new and unique. You can't add them on to other things, but you have to rid of whatever religious path you had in the past and place your full alignment with who he is. All of who he is is completely unique. He and his gospel are fundamentally unlike anything else in the world. Now, because Jesus has come and is so unique, 
that people get into trouble with respect to him. They don't know what to do with him, so they typically add him on to other things, or they ignore him altogether, or they take parts of his message and leave the rest, or they, which is the point of the Gospels, clearly focus on, or, or they focus their entire lives around him completely. You see these things, and you might understand where people are in maybe the world around you. They don't understand him, and so they ignore what he says or who he is. Or they don't really know what to do with Jesus, so they kind of, they kind of layer him on top of their other pursuits. You know, he sounds really good. He sounds like a great additive or a next step, so let's, let's take him. Or, or they take parts of his message and leave off the rest. We see that in different movements in our world today where I, I like Jesus for this area, but I, but I don't like Christianity for this other area, so I'll, I'll have this segment of Jesus and not the others. Or they wisely focus their entire lives around him. Now, this is the problem with the disciples of John. Uh, let's look at his teaching. It says in verse 15 there in our text, And Jesus said to him, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. He's not making a general statement saying that the new theology is right and John's posse were a bunch of old fogies. You know, he's not like a new diet fad where every time a new diet fad comes on, everyone gets really pumped about it, and it's kind of doing the same thing than the other fads. It might just have a new name on it. What he's saying is that he's unlike anything else that was ever before them. Now, what he's not doing is he is not doing away with the Old Testament. There are people who think that Jesus came and got rid of the Old Testament or that you don't need to read anything that's other than in red letters. There are many people who think that the Old Testament is done away with, that Christianity has put off the Old Testament. They, they focus then on the New Testament or just the words of Christ altogether. And that's a, that's a bogus claim. It's a bogus way to read the Scriptures. And it also is an incomplete way to view God. He said in chapter 5 that he didn't come to destroy the law and the prophets, but to fulfill them. And we've seen again and again and again in the book of Matthew where everything that was pointing to this coming Messiah was fulfilled in him and he wasn't denying anything from the old. What Jesus is concerned about and is teaching for in our passage is the misunderstanding of the old and the new. He's saying you're misunderstanding the old and you're misunderstanding the new. What he's demonstrating is that his inaugurated kingdom brings with it a new focus for his followers. Him himself as an inaugurated kingdom brings a new focus for he and his followers. Verse 15 asks the question, how can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is in front of them? These people were fasting and you are to fast when you're in a period of mourning. And he's saying, I'm here. Why would you ever be mourning? He's pushing back on them saying you have a misunderstanding of who I am if you are mourning in my presence. You are taught to mourn in anticipation of Christ's coming, or in our case, we are to mourn or fast in anticipation of his second coming. But in this demonstration, Jesus is saying, hey, perk up, I'm here. Why are you throwing ashes on yourself? You know, no one would ever go to a party and complain or say, oh, this is such a funeral. It's like, look around, it is a wedding What are you so sad about? Everyone here is happy. What a surprise. First, the Pharisees saying he's not obeying the rules by sitting with sinners. And now it's John's men who are saying, your disciples aren't following the rules by fasting twice a week. We fast a lot, they would say. They were trained by John to fast two days a week in anticipation of the Messiah coming. They would say that we are super religious 
by fasting and being plain or being sad? And Jesus' answer is surprising. He says that his kingdom is only for sinners who, ha- who would be saved by his kingdom's arrival. And his kingdom is the ending of lament for all who fast and wait for its arrival because he is here. Now, friends, you have to recognize that what Jesus is not just doing is just demonstrating that the king is present and you should fast no longer, but what he is also demonstrating to them and telling them in an intense way is that he is Yahweh himself. His effect on people shaking their world, redirecting their attention, giving focus to their aim. He is God incarnate. And yet there's still something about Jesus that we just don't understand. Even his own disciples were constantly being confused and amazed by him. They were amazed often. They were in awe, asking questions, asking clarifying things. And the effect of true Christianity we recognize is how surprising it continually is because the kingdom has arrived. Think of Pentecost later in the book of Acts. A religious feast was held by those from all around the world And they all joined together at marveling in the filling of the amazement of Christ. It also takes place throughout church history, too. We're not just left alone in the words of Scripture. We see this reoccurring again and again in the different movements within the church where Christianity is a staggering, surprising thing. You think of, well, Halloween is next week, which is the ceremony typically amongst Christians as celebrating Reformation Day. Right where we celebrate a man like Martin Luther, who for a long time was trying to earn his way to heaven by doing the right things. And in seeing Christ through the Scriptures, he recognized that the holy, righteous Son of God makes sinners pure by his own work, not by ours. He recognized that the purity of justification coming by grace alone, not work alone, by faith alone, not in actions alone, but in Christ alone, not in my atoning work alone, made him known throughout the rest of Scripture. We recognize that people all over the place, like Luther or like Paul or even more modern times like George Whitfield or John Wesley, where they were surprised at the effect of the gospel having shown up preciously before their eyes. I hope you see how unique the story and the Scriptures are about who Jesus is. The Lord of the universe, who is going to make way for reconciliation between sinners and a holy God by giving his whole life over for their accounts. It's completely foreign to our world. Everything else that brings you glory in this life is from your own effort. Everything else is through your own drive. Everything else is through you fighting through or, or things just being placed on your lap or, or things where you are overcoming so much. Yet here in the gospel, we see the surprising effect of Jesus is that the kingdom is present in their eyes and mourning is done away with. The gospel is so surprising. And here are John's disciples surprised at Jesus' followers not fasting. John's disciples thought they knew what true religion was. And Jesus' disciples were different. And so John's disciples thought that Jesus' disciples were wrong because they weren't fasting twice a week like they were taught to fast by John. If you want to follow and place your face on the Messiah, fast twice a week. And yet, these guys over here are doing that. And it's still like that today. We all have our own view of what Christianity is. We're ready to do it. We're ready to defend it. We're ready to explain it. We're ready to argue about it. I think Christianity is blank, 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 on, on, and on. 
But do you know really what Christianity is? We all start off thinking we know exactly what it is by typically what we do. Just like the, the question I threw up earlier, what makes you a Christian? Our instinct is to say things of what we do. Let me put it like this. If you aren't amazed at the Christian message, then you don't know the Christian message at all. Because the thing that we are trained in continually is to do for ourselves. And yet what we see in the gospel is that Jesus actually did it for us. Very plainly, the Christian message is the incarnate God coming down to save sinners by the sacrifice of the Son's life. It's shocking. And if it's not amazing then, and if it's not amazing now, then friend, you just don't truly grasp it. God himself, incarnate, came down and went to a cross to bear the wrath of God. We learn that we must be careful from this passage in asserting man-made patterns of righteousness on other people. It's good to be practicing your religion. Uh, It it often seems wrong because we think we uh, were against pre-programmed practice. It, it It is right to pray. It is right to read the Word. It is right to memorize Scripture. It is right to evangelize. It is right to disciple. It is right to worship together. It is right to break bread with other people. It is right to follow the one another's in the scriptures. But friends, that doesn't save you. And these people were confused at what they were doing because they were told to do this. Think back to Luther. We recognize that we very often place our own man-made patterns of righteousness on other people for the vindication of their own souls. However helpful they may be, we must be careful of asserting Man-made patterns of righteousness on others. Think back to Luther. Who persecuted Luther the most? The pagans he took his message to? Or think to George Whitfield's life. Who persecuted George Whitfield? The farmers who he preached at? No, they were the ones who said, keep preaching. It was the ones who, like the disciples of John, who were placing on others their religious practices that they made up who are persecuting those who are following Jesus. The people who are coming to see Christ in every situation. Those who say very often, but that's not how we do things. That's what this text is calling itself out against. In Christ who came, it's Christ who came not so that you could add him to your worship, but that your worship would be aimed at him. And we must take careful an inventory of what we do on a regular life. Am, am I doing these things for my own justification? Or am I doing these things to give myself a, a clearer picture of who God is? You know, if you are studying the word every day, that is very, very good, but that won't save you. It can direct you towards the one who will. And on, and on this side of Eden, where you are saved in Christ, You want to go to the Word, you want to pray, you want to gather with other Christians on Sunday, not so that you'll be saved or out of fear that you'll be kicked out of the faith, but because you want a clearer picture of who God is and what His will is for your life. Jesus responds to John's disciples here, and He said, let me me give you the answer, and it's very simple. The reason my disciples don't follow the two-day fast like John has commanded is because I'm here, and you didn't see me where you were. That's why they don't fast. I'm here. You see, I'm the Messiah. I'm the bridegroom. I'm the bridegroom of Israel. And you don't fast at a wedding. 
You feast at a wedding. It's a time of joy. It's a time of triumph. It's a time of hope. It's a time of blessing. You don't mourn and fast because I am with you. But when the wedding is on, you feast. You celebrate. And that's why my disciples don't fast because I'm here. I'm the groom. They're my attendants. They're my groomsmen. And that's why they don't fast. Do you see how you can deceive yourself in following Jesus in discipleship by being led by a process instead of being led by a person. There are a thousand things that you can do to help you follow Jesus. And honestly, I hope you do them all. But if those things become the focus or the object of or the end of your faith, you don't understand the gospel. You're missing out on Christ. It is him who is the object of our heart because it is his presence where the feast of glory is held. I love performing weddings. I've had the uh, opportunity to do a lot of them in my life. And and weddings are wonderful because they're so symbolic and and helpful in explaining uh, the gospel, the mere symbols that happen, the mere arrangements of everything. You you can just kind of go into the gospel the whole time. But the the procession of a wedding is actually completely backwards from what the gospel is. Now, I'm not suggesting this. So for those of you who are young or those of you who want to be married and those of you who might be looking for forward to your marriage, don't say to your future mother-in-law, well, Asher said we should arrange our wedding to do this. I'm just saying, see the irony in what is happening at a wedding. At a wedding, we are purely fixated on the gospel, and what we have the opportunity of doing is looking at the gospel being played out. I'm not suggesting it, but I think it's odd in a way that we are fixated on the gospel, we actually have the, the groom up front and the bride coming down the aisle. If you want a real wedding that reflects the gospel, you're going to have the groom in the back who is coming for his bride. Friends, that, I'm not saying do it, but boy, wouldn't that be something. In a blaze of glory, he comes and scoops her up and saves her from despair and carries her on to destiny. And that is what we see with God incarnate coming for his people. There would be bursts of trumpets and holy angels circling the chamber doors, and it would be the groom who enters from the back and comes to the front. Preparation for the Messiah's coming required repentance. It required a certain self-denial. It required uh, mourning with ashes and sackcloth. But they came to Jesus, and he said, cry no more. Look at me. Friends, are you amazed at what the gospel clearly shows and what he's teaching here? We also see that his teaching is not just incredible, but it's also exclusive Look at Christ's exclusive gospel teaching here. Christ's gospel, his message, is not just unique in that it's new, but also it is exclusive in that it is above and set apart from everything else. Now, more clearly, Christianity is not something that you can add to something else. People try to do this all the time. And nobody has this sole ownership of messing it up. You can look at every demographic, every area of the country, every area of the world, every type of people in this town, Everyone messes this up, and here's how this happens. You start out with your own view of the world or how the world ought to be, and then you borrow Christian terms or ideals and then convince yourself that it is gospel-centered when you package them all together. So you have a gospel-centered business or a gospel-centered family or a gospel-centered operation or a gospel-centered you know, kids' activities after recess, you know, something. We need to recognize that Christ's teaching about himself is exclusive 
and separate from anything else. It cannot be added onto anything else. This is called syncretism. The gospel isn't to be mixed with anything. And so you, you take these guys like John's disciples, and they follow John, and they live like John, and they act like John, and then they look at Jesus. Think about it. They look at Jesus, and they say, you're doing it different. <laughs> you know, incredible. They're looking at Jesus and saying, you're messed up. And Jesus says, well, you're actually doing it wrong. And he gives them two parables and to explain this. Look at verse 16 of our text. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment, and a worse tear is made. In expanding on his teaching that Yahweh is right in front of them, he's saying that, that you, can, you can't just have a special religiously active life and sprinkle a little Jesus on top and expect it to be anything other than a terrible tasting cake. You can't have a torn blanket, but then sew on a Jesus patch and expect the blanket to be made better. You can't have a, you can't have a day and go, well, if I have a good quiet time tomorrow, then tomorrow will be a better day. If you're doing that, you're just focusing on the old. And Jesus is saying, I have come to make all things new. Or look at verse 17 of the text. Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. And if it is, the skins burst and the wine is spilled and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins, so both are preserved. Take your life. Take your life and view it like a watertight bag that you would hold wine in. Uh, the wine that was originally in it would cause the bag to expand and fit just right for that wine after that time. When you open it and pour the wine out, that bag is now useless. You, you don't put in more wine into it because it's already stretched. And if you do, it'll expand and it'll pop like a balloon. But within the, the tension of this passage, the disciples of John are judging the other disciples of Jesus because they think Jesus' disciples are on the wrong page. And Jesus is effectively saying, what are you talking about? They're focused on me. Don't put your wine into their wineskins. They're drinking the wine that I provide. He himself is what matters. And that really is the focus and the tension of this text. Whatever you are doing, if it is not focused on the Lord, then you are doing the wrong thing. That is the Christian path. Focusing on the Lord with everything that he has given us. What makes Christianity so unique and so powerful is its focus. Its focus is Christ himself. It makes it different than, than any other religion around it. He is necessary for Christianity to work. Buddha is not necessary for Buddhism to work. Muhammad is not necessary for Islam to be practiced. You know, whoever the Mormons worship is not necessary for their practice to unfold. But Christianity has at its focus Christ himself. The applications from this are nearly endless. Can we have worship and miss Christ? Can you take your kids to Christian activities and miss Christ? Can you marry a Christian man and miss worshiping Christ? Can you take a good job and move to a good area and go to a good school and come home at six and have a 401k and be a deacon at a church or have a study Bible and give money to the poor and miss out on the very feast that is before you. Christianity before the disciples of John was becoming ritual. Fasting two times a week sounds great. Why are they sad when Christ is right there? And what Jesus is saying is Christianity is not a practice of rituals, but a relationship with a person. He is telling them that what sets their life apart from anything else is not their persistent practice at things they've comprised, but instead their relationships with the bridegroom. 
Friends, why is it cool to go to a wedding? It is not cool because of the cake. It is not cool because of the tuxes. It is not cool because of the formal setting. It is not cool because everyone finally dresses up. It is cool because you were invited. What makes a man a Christian is relationship to the bridegroom. You can be good. You can be religious. But you are not a Christian if you are not set on the person of Jesus. And so what is your relationship with the bridegroom? That's the call of this text for all of, this, for all of us this morning. What is your relationship with the bridegroom that is unlike any patch or any case of wine? Jesus says, if I'm present, they're joyful. If I'm absent, they're sad. I'm the focus of their heart. Where I am, who I am, governs everything about them. This is the heart of Christianity. His mere presence is the heart of Christianity. The whole message of Christianity is to say that God has visited and redeemed his people in the person of his only begotten son, the bridegroom. So who is this bridegroom ought to be the most important person for us to figure out, non-Christian. Investigate Jesus as much as you can. Tear apart Wikipedia Ask anyone around you for a book. Read this Bible that demonstrates who Jesus is. We think that he is the object of our faith. And we might be so crazy in your mind, but but is there something about him that you are missing out on? The disciples of John would be just like you. They were missing out on who Jesus was because they weren't focused on him. And, And these disciples, whoever they would be, they were a ragtag bunch of people. Whoever they would be, they were filled with what the world called joy because they were in relation with this bridegroom. Now, last, we have Christ's explicit teaching. Not only is it exclusive, but it also is explicit. Here, Jesus marvelously not only demonstrates who he is, but broadcasts and forecasts what he will do. Look again at verse 15. And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. Here he brings an incredible amount of attention again to himself. Who is he that speaks like this? Who is he himself? The bridegroom is demanding their attention, their worship, and he's actually demanding that wherever he is, that dictates their emotion. If he's not there, they're sad. If he is there, they're happy. I think there are a couple of things. Three things that I want to note under Christ's explicit teaching of that I think this text is bringing to our attention. The first thing, when we think about Christianity, we must understand that the person of Christ is the most important thing about Christianity. He is the bridegroom. He's the one who comes from heaven to be amongst us. He's the incarnation. He's the the two natures in one person. He is the uniqueness of the Son of God who knows what he's come to do. He's come to suffer. He's come to be lifted up on a cross. He's come to suffer the weight of sin, to suffer the wrath of God and die a sinner's death to be buried. The person of Christ is the most important thing about our lives. Friends, is your life determined, dictated, or directed by him today? Or is he just something that you add on when you need something? Number two, Under Christ's explicit teaching, we see the uniqueness of Christ's gospel is that we become Christians not by our activities, but by his grace. John's people were saying, look at your people, they're not fasting. What made them religious was their observing the rules. 
And friends, notice the irony. The rules that they were observing were rules that they made up instead of the captivity of their hearts. And friends, not to be a jerk, but I am fearful that many of you think you are a Christian because of what you've done or what you currently do. And if that is you, I beg you to turn your attention away from your hands and your feet and to Christ's heart. Alistair Begg, one of my favorite preachers, perfectly has it put that if your testimony of God's saving work starts with anything other than he, then you don't know the gospel. What makes you a Christian? Well, I've, well, I did, well, I went, well, I walked. Friends, you are no savior. And you did not walk. And you did not go. And you did not look. Because your eyes were covered. Your ears were closed off. Your feet were nailed to the floor. And you were dead like a corpse. But he, he, the bridegroom, came for you. That is the heart of our gospel. What makes a man a Christian is not that he's been sweating or fasting, but that he has received an invitation to the wedding feast. The bridegroom has invited his people. And so the gospel is shocking and staggering. Number three, we see in the exclusive, explicit teaching of Christ, we see that Christianity's chief characteristic is its joy. Can the wedding guests of the bridegroom mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? John's disciples were surprised that Jesus' disciples were so joyful. Jesus basically says, why do you go along so sad and fasting and weeping and looking all miserable? I'm right here. Your, your notion of faith is wrong if you're not filled with joy because here I am. Now, most people see Christianity or the Christian religion as something that only says stop or don't or no. Long nights and strained days, it means you're filled with doubts and vague hopes and Man trying and trying and trying and trying to please God, desperate for something more. That's, that is what people think of Christianity, but Christianity is something that gives you joy. Morality cannot give you joy. Action cannot give you joy. Guys, the reason why we don't like to go to work is because we don't like to work. Why is Christianity a place of joy? Because it's the free gift of God's grace where the cost of forgiveness was placed on him. And look at where you are in being filled by his spirit. You're in his presence now. What Jesus says is come to my marriage feast and come for nothing. It's all been supplied. The food I made, the invitations I sent, the room I built, the friends I've gathered, come for nothing. When you think of what he's done for us, are you not filled with joy? And seeing where he's come from, what he's done, what he went through, where he went, where he hung, where he was buried, where he emerged from that grave, where he ascended, where he sits now and where he sent his spirit from, for the sick, for the unrighteous, for the ungodly. And why would they be sad? 
And then think about not only what he's done, but what he's given you so freely. What he places before you when you come to the feast. Freedom. Forgiveness from your sins. Those your sins were like scarlet, now they are white as snow. Though you sinned and lived an evil life, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, he says, and you will be saved. Now without anything else, believe in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. Now and you'll be forgiven. And you're given a new life. And you're given a new power where you are filled with his spirit in such a way that you no longer have to be confused at where to give your attention. You no longer have to be reminded of who to look at. You no longer have to be deterred on what to do, but you have the ability to set your face on him, never needing to be in fear for as long as you know where to look, look at him. My dear friends, are you rejoicing in Christ Jesus this day? Do you realize that the Son of God loves his children in such a way that he sent his Son to die for them on a cross so that the sick may be healed, so that the unrighteous would be turned to godly, so that the friends would know the groom, so that sinners may be redeemed? I pray your discipleship is one of joy. I pray that your personhood is focused on him. I pray that your effort in bringing others along is for their attention to be set on his glorious face. In the 1800s, based on a theological letter of Samuel Rutherford, Anne Ross' cousin wrote a little-known song called The Sands of Time Are Sinking, that in the midst of a world that seems to be sinking all around us, this letter, this song, these words are meant to take us from a spot of lowliness and to turn our attention on the one who is high. And I think there are seven or eight verses, but here the last one, where it says, The bride eyes not her garments, but her dear bridegroom's face. I will not gaze at glory, but on my King of grace. Not at the crown he gives, but on his pierced hand. The Lamb is all the glory in Emmanuel's land. Let's pray. Our gracious and heavenly Father, may you be the focus of our life. May you receive all of our attention. May you consume us with all of the fire that you have given us. May we devote ourselves to you, give ourselves to you, turn our attention to you, bring others alongside toward you, and may we feast, recognizing that we are in the house of Zion. Amen.